Good morning, everyone. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church. Very warm welcome to you. If you've got a Bible, could you go to Mark chapter 11? Mark chapter 11. We will get there momentarily. Now, uh, in in preparing what I was going to speak about today, I had a little bit of a revelation, um, which I was kind of aware of, but suddenly it became into clarity, and that was... I used to live my life thinking I was in charge of it and that I got to call the shots and I got to do things. But the more I thought about it, reality bit, and I realized that actually I'm not in charge of so very many things in my life. I have a couple of children in my house and they like to play football and they play for a football team on a Saturday. And they go and play and they train on a Monday night and they play on a Saturday, which means that I find myself Monday evening through the perishing winter standing there watching them play and do drills and I just have to, between six and eight every Monday evening, that's where I am. And I have to take them there. And if that gets changed because there's a bank holiday, it's suddenly I find myself on my Friday evening, six till eight, because I've moved the training and I just get a message saying, this is where you'll be. And so I have to do what I'm told. And then when a match comes around, they say, you have to drive here, be there by this time, because kickoffs at that time, I'm suddenly finding myself doing this, taking my children to places. And then when I drive and get in my car, suddenly actually there's all sorts of rules and regulations I need to follow. I have to follow the speed limit. I have to make sure my car is taxed, MOT, insurance, all those things are in place. Suddenly someone's telling me what to do. Even with my own body and how I live it, I've got things coming in saying you've got to eat five uh, fruit and veg a day, at least between five and ten, and you've got to do your 10,000 steps to remain healthy so you're not a burden on the system. I'm like, oh man. And then on Friday, I was at the dentist. And he was doing the examination early in the morning, not what you want first thing on a Friday. And suddenly I find out the tooth in the back here, he's saying actually it's broken, it needs work. There are PowerPoint slides that I'm looking at. He's showing me stuff from um, sort of training he's done, saying this is what's wrong with your tooth, it flexes, it needs something in there. And then a bill gets landed on me saying it's gonna cost nearly 300 pounds to sort your tooth out. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I've got lots of them, do I need that one, really? Really? But no, but I am a man under authority. Even when it comes to church, I'm the leader. I don't get to choose a lot of stuff. My life group leader sends me a message. We're meeting here at this time. Be there. I'm like, all right, steady on. So there, there I am. Bring this. And I'm like, oh, cheers. Okay, fine. I'll do that. So that's what I go and do. With that, there are meetings that I have to attend that I don't get to choose, I just have to turn up on them. Even with my life day-to-day and my work, which I get a lot of flexibility over, bank holidays, strike days, teacher training days, mess it up. I haven't had a decent week, four weeks it seems, where actually I've got my children at home when I think you should be at school so I can get on with my work. No, someone else is calling the shots on that. We do have trauma tomorrow morning, you realise most of us have got to go to work. It's like, what do you mean? It's Monday and I've got to go to work. But actually, but a lot of Mondays we've had off, bank holidays, that's wonderful. But someone else is calling the shots in my life. And what we're going to look at today is who's calling the shots in your life. Who is the authority really in your life? And who are you bowing to? And who are you submitting to? So 
We've got the Gospel of Mark that we've been studying through. We're in chapter 11 now. We've had the first eight chapters where Jesus has come. He is the one. He is the Messiah. He's the one who's been foretold. He proclaims miracles, does teaching, um, heals the sick, casts out demons. And Mark has shown us that he is the one in the first eight chapters. We've had the next few chapters, 8, 9, and 10, where Jesus is on the way. He is heading somewhere, which is Jerusalem, which we've now reached. Chapters 11 to 16 are Jesus in Jerusalem. Last week of his life, we know he has come to die, to um, pay for the sins of the world, and then to rise again. And that's where we find ourselves. And Jesus has come. Uh, Last week, we looked, he arrived in Jerusalem, palm branches, riding on a donkey. He was the Messiah. He was the one who's come, and he went to the temple. And the temple was the key place for Jewish worship, where they worship the presence of God was in the temple. And Jesus, as, as God himself, comes to the temple and he finds the temple and the systems lacking. And there was the image of the fig tree that Jesus cursed and the fig tree was barren even though it looked like it should have fruit. And the same with the temple. It was barren even though it looked like she had, uh, it should have fruit. And Jesus pronounced judgment on the tree but also there was judgment on the temple and all that that meant. And so in that context we have our next section from the Gospel of Mark, which we're going to read together. We've got five slides coming up behind me, and Jeremy is going to run around with a roving mic, and we've got some people to read it. So off you go. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And he took them, sorry, he took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards, the vineyard to others. Have you, not, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. 
Fantastic. Thank you, every one of those. All right, big idea this morning is this. Jesus is Lord, and nothing can change that. Jesus is Lord, and nothing can change that. Now, what we've got here in this section of Mark is we've got a series of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders, which don't end till the end of chapter 12. And so we've got a bit now, and the next couple of weeks we'll be looking at these conflicts. And these are similar to conflicts we've seen in Mark chapter 2. If you remember back when we started there, where Jesus got into conflict in the synagogues with people when he was doing things and he was healing. Um, and they are set in the context of the temple. Even that first uh, line of that reading talks about Jesus is back in the temple. And the opposition comes from the leaders who are running the temple kind of organization. And what we had at the beginning, if you look at the section as a whole, what we had at the beginning of the section was Jesus coming into the temple and he was particularly upset with the money changers who were trying to fleece God's people when they were trying to come and worship and sacrifice there. And if you go to the end of the section, right at the end of chapter 12, you have the widow, the famous story of the widow who only had a couple of copper coins and she went and put them in the offering and Jesus says she's given everything She's the one, she's the true worshipper in contrast with the rich who came and gave lots of money but actually didn't give much of what they had. It was only a tiny percentage. And so what sandwiched between false worship of people trying to screw God's people for money and true worship of one who gives everything to God, in the middle we've got all these conflicts with the religious leaders which is what we're going to look at today. And so it begins with a confrontation and then a response. Let's look at the confrontation first. This is all about the question of authority. If we go through Mark's gospel, we have seen again and again and again, one of the things Mark highlights about Jesus is he is one who has unrivaled authority. Unrivaled authority. In his first public appearance back in chapter 1, Jesus taught in a synagogue and he cast out an unclean spirit and it says people were astonished at his authority by comparison of the other teachers the other leaders around him Jesus had come and shown that he was an expert in the Jewish scriptures and he was a, he was also lord over the demonic realm because of his divine authority Jesus later claims to be over the law's law and the sabbath he's able to forgive sins he even says he can bind the strong man which is a reference to satan and the demonic realm. Jesus, even when he speaks, he presumes authority when he says things like, truly, I say to you, not appealing to someone else, but speaking from his own authority. He even uses the name of God in certain places, the I am, that we go right back to Exodus finding. Jesus speaks this out about himself. And in last week's sermon, we see Jesus coming and even choosing to replace the temple worship, which was corrupt, with worship of him. Jesus is the new temple where the presence of God dwells, not this building in Jerusalem where all these systems and rituals are in place. He is the one of the highest authority. And it says he came again into Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple. There's that context. Jesus is still in the temple, the center of Jewish worship at the time. And it says the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Those three uh, groups make up the larger group called the Sanhedrin, which was the highest authority in Judaism at the time. They made up this body which basically ran um, the Jewish nation from a religious point of view. So the, the priests, the scribes, and the elders represented that group. So they are coming to Jesus to speak to him. The highest religious authority in the land are coming to him, and they ask him, by what authority 
Do you do this? What they're asking for is, by what right do you do this? It's clear Jesus has authority because he does the stuff. He heals people and he casts out demons. But they're basically asking, by what right do you do this? Because under the law at the time, under the custom, if you uh, appeal to a false authority in religious matters, it was ground for capital punishment. And so actually they wanted to know, by what right are you doing these things? And this would be a reference to the immediate context was last week we saw Jesus cleared the temple courts, the outer courts of the temple, of the money changes. But actually there's a wider context that Jesus has been saying and doing, which would have been a provocation to these religious leaders. He proclaimed to you know, forgive sin, accept singers. He's called tax collectors to become one of his followers. He's redefined the Sabbath. Um, he's also gone after the oral tradition we saw in uh, Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 6, and even the temple itself we saw last week. And so they recognize an authority on Jesus, but they're questioning kind of his right to do it because he stands outside of them. He's not part of them, the Sanhedrin. They're the authority. And it's actually saying, if you're over there with authority, what's going on? What do you do? It. Jesus then responds with a counter question, which was not uncommon at the time. And he questions about the baptism of John. And John is a reference to John the Baptist, which we saw back in chapter 1, uh, how Mark began his gospel. And he basically says to him about this baptism that comes from John, he says, is it from heaven or from man? Now, heaven... He uses the word heaven in replacement of God just for Jewish customs. He didn't want to say the name of God because it was too sensitive, too holy. So he, uses, he stands in convention and says, is it from heaven, i.e. God, or is it from man? And Jesus himself was baptized by John in the River Jordan. He was responded to him, so he went down there. He submitted to authority. He went down. He got baptized there. And that is the point from Mark's um, gospel where Jesus' public ministry began. It comes with an affirmation of the Father, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And it comes with the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. We said this. We see the Trinity there, but there is the beginning of Jesus' ministry where it began. When after that, he started teaching and healing and performing miracles. And so for him, it goes back to there. And so they are talking about Jesus, where is your authority? And he jumps back and actually says, if you're going to make a decision about me, it goes back further. You've got to think about John, because John was the forerunner. John was the one who was coming to proclaim the way of the Messiah. So if you're going to think about me and I question me, you've got to go back to there and think about John and what you think about John. Because if you acknowledge John and what he was doing, you'll acknowledge me and what I am. But if you deny John and who he was, you will therefore deny me. So he's going back to them. And it says they discussed it, verse 31. Now, unfortunately, this word I read in the commentary, it appears seven times in the Gospel of Mark, and it always appears where people are trying to evade what Jesus is saying. So we could say it's kind of a neutral, innocuous word they discuss, but actually behind it and how Mark uses it, it describes that these religious leaders were trying to get away from Jesus, get out of the question, get out of what he's asking them, trying to not be pinned down. And Jesus has put them kind of in a position where you've got to go one way or the other. You either say it was from heaven, from God, what John was doing, or it was from man. And they answer, we don't know. And the answer is, and they, they didn't know in sense of they were ignorant. They didn't know because they were unwilling to make a choice. They were unwilling to make a decision. They were refusing to accept who Jesus was. We might say that in modern parlance. We might say things like, oh, I'm keeping an open mind, which is just code for saying, actually, we're skeptical, we don't believe, or it's just sheer fear and cowardice, saying, actually, I don't want to 
make a decision because it has consequences when I do. And so they're saying, we don't know what we're doing. And they are governed by the fear of popular opinion, it says there, because they were afraid of the people, because the people knew John was a prophet. And so if they go with, say, actually, we do accept who John was and what he was doing, they have to accept him as a prophet. And what was he saying as a prophet? There's one coming who is the Messiah. And by the way, this is him. You'll see him. You'll know him. So if they go with that, they have to then go all in on who Jesus is and what he's saying. And therefore, they have to accept his authority. But what do they do? They say, we don't know. And then Jesus just leaves them in and says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He is leaving them in their stubbornness, their hardness of heart, and their unbelief. Because they are not willing to make a decision... A faithful decision to actually say, yes, we recognize you. We know who you are. We recognize who John was as the forerunner. You are the Messiah, the one who's come after him. Jesus says, I'm not going to get involved with that. And so they will not accept who Jesus is. They will not accept that Jesus is the one who has come, who's been affirmed by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, performed all these things, come back to his temple as God himself. And if they accept that, everything will have to change in there. And so what they found out is that Jesus is Lord, but actually they are denying it. But their denial will not change the fact that who he is, he is who he said he was. He is still the Lord. They effectively clamped their hands over their ears and done that, la, 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 la. We can't hear you. Because Jesus has confronted them with the reality of who he is. He has authority and his authority comes from God because he is God. And then he responds with a parable. It says, and he began to speak to them in parables. And we saw parables back in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 4. If you go back there, the famous one is the parable of the sower that's in there. But this is the first one since then. And it's quite a long one. So we should take note of that. And a parable is a little story with a big idea. And it contains a spiritual truth for those who are willing to hear. We did a series on parables a little while ago called The Stories Jesus Told. If you want to look into them more, they're all online. You can go and have a listen to that. And he uses the image in this parable of tenant farmers with an absentee landlord, which was not an uncommon practice at the time. And so uh, a landlord would buy uh, an area. There would be a farm on that area. He would then hire people to run the farm and look after the farm. But what they were then to do was then to give the landlord the share of the goods. They got to keep some because they were running it, so that was their pay, if you will. But actually, they were also duty-bound then to give the landlord their share of the harvest that came in, and that was just what it was. And so he talks about this, and he says, there's a parable there drawn from everyday life, and we need to note In the beginning of this parable, there is prophetic image from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 5, 1 and 2, and then remember what we read. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And so what we've got here, imagery throughout the Old Testament, is the vineyard represents the people of God, represents Israel. And so Jesus is telling a parable about the vineyard, and so he is talking about the people of God, and particularly to the religious leaders, about them. And then he goes on to say, what happens in this vineyard? Well, the farmers are working the land, they're doing their job, 
but when the landlord sends his representatives to collect what is due from him, it ends in violence. It ends in violence, and it ends in violence over and over again. It says they take them and they beat them. They go away empty-handed. They struck them on the head. They treated them shamefully. Some they even killed. And so as the landlord comes to collect what is his, the tenant farmers are saying, no, you can't have that, and actually acting, responding with violence. And you can see the application to who Jesus is speaking to in the temple with the religious authorities and saying, well, if Israel's the vineyard and you're responsible for that and you are to give God his due, you're not doing that. And there's people, people have been sent, representatives, again and again and again, the prophets and leaders of God have come, but the history of Israel is one of rebellion against God. The history of the people of God is a history of rebellion against God. And God shows his patience by sending emissary after emissary to say, give me what is due, because the farm does not belong to the tenants. It's the landlord's farm. And the produce from the land is not theirs. It's the landlord's. It belongs to God, and they're not doing it. And then it says, finally, it reaches the culmination. He says, I'll send one other. Who? My beloved son. Who's the beloved son? Jesus. What have we literally just read about John and his baptism? What happened at the baptism? The voice of the Father spoke about Jesus. This is my beloved son. So Jesus, he's now inserted into the parable. And he's saying, they're going to respect my son. The language changes here because what happens when the son comes? The son is the legal heir. He is the legal heir. He has the right to the vineyard because it belongs to the father. And so the son is going to inherit it. And so this becomes a legal matter now. It's got bigger. It's escalated from just doing what your duty is to give the produce from the farm to the representatives of the farmer, the landlord. Now the son is coming and we've got a legal aspect and it shows the compassion of God because the son is the final word of the father coming to those tenants and saying, calling them to repent after all that they've done. After, if it was me, after the first emissary had gone in and got beaten up and sent them back, I'd have gone full bore, righteous wrath on them. But God has sent others after one another. And then he finally sends his son. They will respect my son because he has a legal right. And he is the beloved one. He is unique amongst all the people who've been sent to those who run the vineyard. But what do the tenants do, it says? They recognize the heir. They know who he is. Apply that back to what we've literally just read. And they, they respond, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. We get to keep this vineyard. And so they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him, they threw him out of his vineyard. It says there, they threw him out. So the tenants reject the offer of the father, and they conspire to kill the son, and then they take the son, and they kill him because they want to be in charge. They want to do away with God, and they want to be God. They want to be in charge. They want to call the shots. They don't want to come under authority. And then you get the consequence. Verse 9 says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and he'll destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the building was rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing and this is marvelous in our eyes. And so this becomes now an image of judgment on those leaders who Jesus is talking to, those who run the temple kind of organization, the rituals there, because the vineyard doesn't belong to them. 
It belongs to God. The owner is the Lord. He's the one in charge. And we have this dramatic picture of judgment and then saying actually the vineyard is going to be given to others. And if we just go back a few verses to last week, what was Jesus' problem with the, the selling of money in the outer courts of the temple? He says, my house will be a house of prayer for whom? The Gentiles. Those outside the ethnic descendants of Abraham. And Jesus is saying, actually, there's going to be judgment here, and this vineyard will then be given to others outside. He's prophesying something's going to happen. This, this thing that's localized in one play, it's in one kind of group, this great message of hope is actually going to go out to the world. That's what's coming, and you're standing in the way of that. And so he issues judgment on the temple authorities and the temple itself. And we know, fast forward a few years, AD 70, the temple is utterly destroyed by the Romans after a long siege and they come in and they flatten it and it's never been rebuilt it doesn't exist he's saying judgment is coming not on the whole nation of Israel but on those who are responsible with leadership because they don't recognize the respire it's not a consequence on the whole Jewish people because we know Jesus was a Jew the twelve were a Jew they went and went around preaching the good news it was that the temple system was corrupt and it wasn't bringing people to God as it should. And there's a final quote from Psalm 118 about a stone uh, that was rejected in building Solomon Temple but then became head of the porch uh, that entered into the temple. And this is a marvelous thing. And Jesus is saying, actually, when the message of God goes out to the nations, the message of the risen king, it will be a beautiful and wonderful and marvelous thing to do. And what we find that even human sin and rebellion cannot stop the purpose of God. Even killing the Lord cannot change the fact that he is Lord because Jesus has just prophesied his own death and actually we know he then rises again. And what we find there in that final verse 12, it's so kind of like you want to scream in response to being told what's going to happen to them, you will face judgment and you're going to kill me. What do they do? They seek to arrest him. And we know where that ends up. Jesus has told you what's going to happen and their response is to do what he's just told them. They literally, I'm telling you, if you do this, this is, what's going, this is where it's going to end up. And they end up doing it. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. And this opposition against Jesus just grows and grows and grows, even though he points it out and says, actually, if you do not accept me as Lord, this is where it's going to end up. It's going to end up in judgment and it's going to end up in my death. And so that's what we have there. So let's ask a couple of questions just to earth this and land it in our own hearts with us. Because what this question of authority begs for us, we've got to ask some questions of ourselves. Because they were confronted, these religious authorities were confronted directly with who Jesus was and his authority. And they had a choice to make. They had a choice to make. And there were consequences if they didn't make it. And we know they didn't. It says, do you, and so the question for us is, do you recognize Jesus' authority? Do you recognize who he is? Because he is Lord, and even if you deny it, it doesn't change the fact. And even if you try killing God, it doesn't work because Jesus comes back. That was all part of God's plan. But even if you try and kill him in your own life and push him out, I'll just push him out. I'll ignore him. I'll push him to the side. He's still Lord over all including us and everything we do. Remember, um, a couple of, was it last week, week before we had the coronation of the king, our new king? 
King Charles III, some things that were going round at the time, people saying things like, hashtag, he's not my king, which kind of, I'm not going to comment on Republican or monarchist, but it's fascinating when people say, he's not my king, and you're like, yeah, he is. <laughs> you live in this nation. Look at the front of your passport. It's got his seal on it. It's his government. He's the head of state here. Whether you like it or not, he's still the king. And even if you're a visitor to this nation, and you say, well, actually, I'm a citizen of another nation, you still have to sit under his authority while you're here because there are laws and government and things that run, and you just have to kind of get on board. And so people do that about Jesus. Hashtag, not my king. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. Whether you like it or not, he is still king. And the religious authorities, those uh, elders and scribes and priests, they wanted to keep that position of authority that they had intact. They wanted to be ruling and reigning in their own life. They were not willing to recognize Jesus' authority. And the question for us today is, who is your highest authority? Is it a political or social cause or something? You're, that's what I do. That's what I follow. That's the way that the world should be run. I'll put my time and effort into that. It might be the culture that's swirling around us. It seems to be changing regularly, but saying this is how you should live. This is what right is. This is what truth is. This is the, this is the authority I'm going to follow. Is it you, yourself? I'm my highest authority. I have the wisdom and insight to run my life the way I want to, and I am in charge, and no one else gets to tell me what to do. I have my own truth and the absurdity of what that means. Do you recognize Jesus as Lord and King? Or is he just one among many people I listen to? He just kind of sits on the shelf amongst all the others and say, actually, if it's relevant, I'll look to him. But if it's not, I'll look to something else. Because the message of Mark, the message of the gospel, which he began with in verse 1, it says actually that Jesus is the ultimate highest authority. And ultimately, he's in charge, and he's the one we are to look to, and he is the one we are to bow to. And even for us, who stood outside the covenant people of God, have been brought into that through his death and resurrection. And the message has gone out to the world, and he is ruler over all things and all people. And do you recognize his authority over your life? And which then follows on with a second question. Will you bow to him as Lord? Because saying and doing are different. Saying, yeah, I recognize him as authority and then actually living that out are different. I read this morning my daily reading, uh, I'm reading through Matthew, just got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 7 where it's the, uh, the parable of the, the house, build on a rock or do you build it on sand? Famous story, tell it to the kids. And if when the rain and the winds come, the house on the rock stands and the house on the, the sand falls. And actually, if you look at the language there, Jesus is actually saying, it's actually, who's going to do my words? Not just hear them, not just, oh, yeah, yeah. It's actually, who's going to respond in obedience to them? Because if you respond in obedience, then you're building on the firm foundation. It's not just sitting in the room and hearing them and thinking, oh, yeah, that sounds good. It's actually, are you going to respond to them? Are you going to bow to him as Lord? And bowing the knee can be a painful thing. At my age... Bowing down, well, bowing down is easier, it's getting up that's hard bit. But it can be a painful process. It can be a painful process physically, depending on your age and your ailments. It can be a painful process emotionally as well. Putting 
trust, bowing down. But that is what God has asked us to do. And that means on every single area of our lives. So let's do a quick inventory. What about the Bible, God's word? How do you feel that as authority? We haven't done this for a while. Take your Bible and put it above your head because that's where the Bible should live. God's word lives above you. We don't judge it. It judges us. It looks down on us. We go to it under it and say, what do you say? And we will obey that. We will listen to that. We will believe that. We don't get to put it on the floor, stand over and say, we judge you. If we don't like it, we won't take it. We'll ignore it. We'll try and work our way around it. No, the Bible does that. How do you approach God's word? Is it over you? What about what it, some of the things it says in his word, like we're to do? Simple one, the first one, baptism. It is a command, not a suggestion. Jesus, as the Messiah who had come, the ruler and reign of everything, chose to get baptized as an act of submission. And the person who baptized him was a sinful man, John. He was imperfect and fallen and let Jesus came and said, I'll submit to your authority and you baptize me. We as believers are to submit to the authority of God and be baptized. And it's a submission act. It's as simple as that. We do it. We're to get wet and we're to respond to him in faith as Jesus did. What about the sins in our lives? The things that we know we're doing that are contrary to God's word. Are we submitting to authority and are we fleeing from them and repenting of them? Turning around, going the other way. Are we acknowledging they're wrong in our lives? What about the areas where we use things like our money? Money's a big thing. It covers everything in our lives. Money. Are we using that for the glory of God? Because God says, there's, it's all mine. You're just a tenant. I give it to you to steward and look after. And we are to respond with that by giving firstly back to him with our money. Are we willing to do that? Are you actually bowing to him as Lord when it comes to your current account and your savings? And actually giving it back to him. What about when it comes to communicating the great truth of who he is? Are we telling others? It's good to be friends with people and people to like us. We, we should be kind and gracious. But if that's all we are, that's not enough. The message of the kingdom is get people to like you. No, the message of the kingdom is to proclaim, repent, and believe the good news. That Jesus has come and he was who he says he is. And so... How are we doing in those things? How are we doing in those areas? And as it struck me as I prepared this and I looked at this, I realized that as a preacher, you get to prepare God's word and proclaim it to others. But actually what must happen first and foremost is I must preach to myself and I must let the word of God examine me before I then get it to examine others. And I was struck as I prepared this that actually is why do I do some of these things? Why do I bow down for some of these things? And I realize that I've actually, I've, I've, I've messed up in certain areas because we can bow down to authority for a couple of reasons. One of them, we can bow down out of fear of consequences. Why do I drive in the speed limit? Because I don't want to get a fine points on my license which will cost me money and I don't want the shame and the guilt of having to admit to all of you <laughs> that I got nicked and you know I was driving over the speed limit and so there's a fear-based motivation for that but actually that's probably the wrong motivation the reason is they, that doesn't produce transformative hearts that doesn't change you it's just legalism because as soon as there's no cameras 
and I'm on an open road, heavy foot. Yeah. What's the right reason? Well, the right reason is what do you treasure? And the reality is when I'm driving the car, I've got my kids in the back. I don't want to keep them safe. There's strangers on the road in cars and pedestrians and on bicycles and all the other things. And actually, if my heart is to keep them safe and to look after them because I value and treasure them, I will drive accordingly. And I won't just drive at 29.9 miles an hour. I will come less because actually I'm navigating this busy street with parked cars and kids crossing because I treasure them. And so when it comes to obeying God, it's not about fear of who he is or fear of consequences. It's about what do you treasure? If you treasure God's word as the word of God, you'll read it. Because actually it's God speaking to me. It's how I can live my life. If you do it because I've told you and you don't want to look me in the eye and say, no, I don't bother reading my Bible, that will never produce lasting fruit. You do it because you treasure Jesus. If you get your money and think, I'm going to tithe minimum 10% before tax, why? Because I've been told to, or actually, God, this is all yours. Everything you give me is yours. And so in fact, I'm giving you some of it back, and you let me to get, get me to keep 90 plus percent. Wow! You'll do it willingly and joyfully because you treasure God. If you treasure Jesus and who he is, you will flee from sin because you know it offends him. And he died so you don't have to deal with it. And you'll want it out of your life because it means you can commune with him better. It means you have easier relationships with other one, one another because sin just corrupts and bends us out of shape and infects every part of our lives. And so we flee from that and pursue holiness because it, I treasure Jesus. He is better than those things. He is more important than those things. So let's finish there. Do you want to stand? The band want to come up. I want to pray for you. And I'm going to ask you those questions. Are you going to bow to him as Lord? But not out of fear of consequence. The fact that you think he's going to bash you if you don't, but actually because he is your highest and greatest and most significant treasure. Because if I love the Lord, I get to do all these things, motivated by the fact that he is number one, and he is awesome, and he is worth it. He is the one who will truly satisfy. I can chase after all the fleeting things of this world that have no eternal value and will never last or I get to come and be part of the people of God and worship my King, who's Lord over all things. So maybe you want to just open your hands. And I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to give ourselves in worship. Lord God, we come to you today, and we recognize you as Lord. We say you alone are the highest authorities, and we willingly now bow the knee to you in all areas of our lives. Not our fear of reprisal, but because you are our greatest treasure. Because we love you and we want to serve you. And we recognize that all good things come from you. And we want to give everything, our whole lives to you and all that it means. Lord, and we rejoice that you're a good God reigning over all things. And you are working all things for your great purposes. We thank you that we have been swept up into those purposes we were outside, and because of your death and resurrection, we've been brought in. And we get to stand on the inside 
and worship you, be full of your spirit, have access to the Father. Lord God, we want to say we love you, we praise you, we worship you, we bow before you. And God's people said, Amen.